I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you're listening from, it's wonderful to have you with us. And if you're enjoying Series 10 of Book Off, or any series or episode of Book Off, and can spare us, I don't know, 28 seconds, please do leave us a review, because we'd be ever so grateful. But now, down to business. And my first guest is a New York Times best-selling author whose books include The Sar of Love and Techno and A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, which won the National Books, Critics, Circles, John Leonard Prize. Now, that is a mouthful. And was long-listed for the National Book Award, which is less so of a mouthful. Here to tell us about his latest novel, Mercury Pictures Presents, it's Anthony Mara. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on today. Lovely to have you here, beaming in from the US of A. And my second guest is a writer whose work has appeared in The Stinging Fly and Winter Papers and has been heard on BBC Radio 4. Her debut collection, Sweet Home, has been translated into Italian and Arabic and optioned for television. It won the Butler Literary Award in 2020, was shortlisted for the Edgehill Prize and was Book of the Year in The Guardian, White Review, New Statesman, and the Observer. Here to tell us about Dance Move, her latest collection, it's Wendy Erskine. Welcome to you, Wendy. Hi there, Joe. Lovely to be here. Looking forward to chatting. It's so nice to see you and have you here. And Wendy, Anthony, Anthony, Wendy, I'm not sure if you've met before or not, but uh, there you go. The introductions are done. We haven't, but I'm, I'm so pleased to, to be on here with you, Wendy. Me too, Anthony. It's, it's lovely to be chatting to you in this type of a forum. This is great. And how is Belfast today, Wendy? It's kind of wet, <laughs> gloomy, gloomy, wet, just a bit downbeat, I suppose you would say, for a Monday, but it's okay. It's all right. Classic Monday weather. It Classic is. Monday weather. It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about uh, the two books I've just mentioned that are out now from you both. We're going to find out what you've been reading and enjoying recently. And of course, we will do the book off where each of you gets three minutes to pitch as a book you love that you think everyone should read. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about Mercury Pictures Presents, first of all, Anthony. Um, could you perhaps just introduce us to Maria and maybe set this story up for us? Absolutely. So uh, 
Frank Lloyd Wright once said that if you tip the world on its side, all the loose pieces will land in Los Angeles. And this was never more true than it was in the 1930s and 40s when thousands of refugees fleeing the war in Europe landed in LA, where many of them ended up finding work on the margins of, of Hollywood. And I wanted to explore this community through, uh, through the eyes of Maria Lagana, who is a junior producer at Mercury Pictures, which is a struggling B-movie studio that becomes a hub for European refugees during this period. And this novel is seven years in the making, isn't it? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. I, 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 I began um, in, in 2014, and, and my first two books took around two years apiece to, to write. So I, I, I assumed that I would finish it while Obama was still in office. And yeah. um, didn't quite work out that way. Um, <laughs> But uh, but it uh, it was a lot of fun and um, and I'm I'm glad to be done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but also, I mean, because it is quite an epic story. It's, it was described to me as an epic. Um, and sometimes when you when you get given a book and so it's an epic tale of this or whatever, and you think, oh yeah, yeah. but yours is. I mean, it is. <laughs> I think it is epic, and I think that's um, a testament to how long it's taken you to write the research that you did with all the BFI archives and things, but also the finished product, which is, you know, it doesn't read like all that effort's been put in, if you know what I mean. It reads light touch, and yet you know that it's really, really heavily researched. Yeah, I, research is 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 one of my favorite parts of of writing in general. I, I feel like writing novels is uh, a wonderful excuse to become an amateur expert in <laughs> in something you're passionate about for for uh, you know a, a couple of years and. Uh, you know, in, in this case, one of the reasons it, it took so long to, to write is that um, I could sit around in my pajamas on a Tuesday afternoon watching old movies and, yes. and call it research. And, um, and uh, you know, that's, that's probably what I did far too often. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure, Wendy, that uh, short story writers can also uh, have an afternoon of research, whether that be watching old movies, going for long walks or whatever it is, can't they? They totally can, you know, but whenever I was writing, so I, I've written two collections and I still work as a full-time teacher, so I work full-time oh. in a secondary school. Um, and so I really was not in the position, still really not in the position where I want to spend absolutely ages doing any sort of research. So basically both of my collections, so it's about 21 stories I suppose in total, are all set basically really geographically circumscribed all just in and around about two, three streets where I live, because I basically thought, much as I'd love to do research, I would really enjoy it, I still got this full-time job, which I love, not dissing it, it's great, um, but I don't, I, I can't, I can't devote that amount of time to it, so everything is, everything involved zero research. <laughs> but also, Eddie, would it be fair to say that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that people are more key to your stories than perhaps you know the characters are more key perhaps than the setting well that's interesting that you say that i think the characters are absolutely key i mean everything's sort of set within the same few streets of of east belfast um and i suppose if that's all you're achieving giving people a sense of a few streets they might as well look on on you know google images or google street view or whatever you know 
Um, so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they're the kind of people are fairly universal in, in terms of the issues that they have or the sort of secret longings or, you know, the relationships. These are fairly universal. It always sounds a bit pompous when you say that I'm writing timeless universal themes, you know, it sounds ridiculous, um, really super pompous. but. It's essentially, that's that's why I'm enjoying you saying here that you think it's character rather than place, because although the place is important, the characters are more so. Yeah. Would you just um, set up this latest collection? This is your second collection, Dance Move. Would you just uh, set this up for our listeners? Yes. So I've got here um, 11 stories. And just give you an idea, the first one is about a woman who cleans short, short term lets. She cleans sort of like Airbnbs, that sort of a setup. And whenever she comes to clean one of these um, Airbnbs that have been used or short term lets that have been used for a party, she finds a child that's been left behind from one of the parties. Um, and that sends her down a particular type of road and it, 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 it changes things quite radically for her. So most of these stories are about um, people in some way trying to um, cope with things that have happened to them in the in the past. Um, and they're all set in and around this really sort of circumscribed um, geographical locale. But there's people like there's a faded 80s pop star who um, accepts an invitation from a um, loyalist terror group. Um, to sing at their um, to sing at their at their at their centenary or to sing at a celebration, and he decides not to do much research because he wants to go on this sort of trip down memory lane to the to the character that he used to be, um, and that then is quite sort of I don't know sad consequences for him. Um, I have got another one about a a woman who becomes obsessed with her daughter performing inappropriate dances with her friend. Um, I've got a Marxist, if you're interested in um, Marxist cells gone wrong. Um, I have got um, a Marxist cell in um, London who end up basically becoming ideologically incredibly skewed and they end up um, you know, imprisoning someone um, and almost killing him. Um, so bas basically, in, in some ways, these are really quotidian stories. Sometimes people say not much really happens in them, but I actually beg to differ. I think absolutely loads happens in these. There's a very high body count and a lot of a lot of awful things happening, but hopefully they're very funny. Hopefully, hopefully. I agree. I think there's loads do happening. Yeah, and... Do you think they were funny, Joe? Yes. Good. Yeah. Good. Uh, I, I love the humour in them, and I think... In a collection, uh, it's. <laughs> I, I think you don't want to be hit over the head with every story being really morose or you know like left sort of feeling. Oh God, you know you want to pick up another one. Um, and I was, I always say I love short stories because I love reading them before bed. And actually, I think having a little lift, having that little <laughs> edge of humour, is a is a lovely way to then go to sleep rather than reading something really like, you know art-wrenching, gut-wrenching that leaves you feeling a little bit fragile, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, and Anthony's took, you know, maybe seven years, as we discussed. Where were the, what, what timescale were the bulk of these stories written in? So the bulk of these stories were probably written, um, there were, most of them were written during lockdown. So there was mm. one story that was left over from the previous collection that I'd maybe thought I would make into um, something longer. I'd even thought maybe it could be a novel, but as it, that was actually the cell, the one called Cell, that's about the, um, the political group. Um, 
But most of them were written during lockdown and I probably wrote one about every, about every five to six weeks I wrote, I wrote one and that's the way it, that's the way it worked for me, yeah. Pretty good going, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, not, not, too, not too bad, not too bad. Now, Anthony, I love Hollywood. I love books about Hollywood. I love hearing the stories of then and now and I love visiting Hollywood as well. What specifically drew you in to Hollywood, but not just Hollywood, Hollywood in the World War Two era? Yeah, I so my, my first two books were set in uh, the former Soviet Union. And after after spending, um, you know, a, a, a few years researching and writing those, I was I was ready to, to come in from the cold. And I <laughs> I used to to live in Los Angeles. My wife is is from there, um, and the period of of LA history um, in the 30s and 40s, when you had this just extraordinary cultural transfusion with, um, you know, uh, over 10,000 refugees in exile um, and exiles arriving to to Southern California from from Europe, really just transformed. Um, you know, the city of Los Angeles, the business of Hollywood, and in turn sort of changed how America came to, to see itself. One of the um, most troubling contradictions in, in, in all of this is the fact that so many of these, um, of these refugees, when America entered the war, um, were legally classified as enemy aliens, um, which meant that they um, uh, couldn't uh, they, they had to stay home. Um, I, I believe it was after uh, seven or eight p.m. at night. They uh, were limited to just um, traveling within several miles of of their place of residence. They weren't allowed to own things like cameras uh, or or radios. And so you had this this group of of exile and 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 refugee filmmakers who were. Um, essential to the um, America propaganda apparatus during this period who were themselves denied the very freedoms and the very rights that their films were championing. And it seemed like, like uh, you, you know, you can't walk into a bookstore without um, tripping over a big stack of, of books set in, in World War II. And um, looking at, at this period instead through the eyes of those um, involved in um, in the propaganda um, apparatus seemed like kind of a, a, a different take and, and a new way of looking at um, a fairly you know, familiar story. Um, so I, I, I came to the material largely um, just because I was trying to, um, to grapple with, with the, the political and, and ethical contradictions that, um, that uh, America placed on those exiles and how, how those contradictions sort of reverberate through our culture today. Mm. What was your time in Los Angeles like? I was uh, I was there for uh, five years. I, um, I I went to the University of Southern California for uh, for school. I um, I grew up in Washington D.C. and wanted to uh, get about as far away <laughs> from <laughs> from the East Coast as as I could, and <laughs> and that ended up being L.A. And then I um, I stayed after uh, I graduated, and I worked at a um, in Koreatown at a um, an after school program for a while, um, and I, I loved it. I, I feel like LA um, in, in in certainly in American culture and and maybe um, maybe internationally, I'm not sure gets uh, gets short shrifted a bit. That that it's seen as this sort of very vapid and, and vacuous 
um, environment, um, but it has this incredibly rich and diverse uh, history, um, uh, and it's it's uh, a, a fantastic place. I, I, I encourage more people to to live there. I love it. I live there. I live there. Really? That's why I always bring it up. Yeah, not quite five years though. Um, I think the authorities would have had something to say about that. I, I, li I lived there for three months. And what, uh, what, what brought you over there? What were you doing? I was working uh, in shipping. Really? Um, yeah. So I was going to LAX. Well, not not to LAX every day, but but near there in Inglewood, and mm. um, working out of the some of the like shipping firms that were <laughs> one of the shipping firms that was there. Um, but I was the largest in, the uh, largest port in America. Long the Beach. largest port in America, Anthony. Correct. You know your facts. And because I went there at such an early age, uh, I went there when I was 15, and then I lived there when I was sort of 18, 19, and then I've been back ever since for work and pleasure. I just sort of um, can't stop going back now. I've got, But it's got a special place in my heart because of the the time in which I spent there, I spent, that, that mm -hmm. I was there. Um, yeah, but I, I always, whenever Los Angeles sort of crops up in books or whenever one of my guests is in LA we have a big old chat about it because I just I'm with you I think it's a great city and I know people hate it so, <laughs> and I, I have done on occasions but I also love it and the love outweighs the hate very much have you ever been Wendy you've been over to the west coast at all no oh I've been, I've been to San Francisco I've been to San oh, yeah. Francisco and Los Gatos but that's that's it that's it not been yes. not, not been further down to the uh, city of angels yet. no I'd love to go though I would love it I think you are. We can probably try and arrange that between between Anthony and me. We can probably try and find a reason why we should all be out. Exactly. There. We 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 should we should have a, a sequel to this episode, a, a live show in person. Yeah. In, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. Sure. Sure. I'll call up a couple of publishers who they'll cover the plane first, when they? I think they'll be fine. <laughs> they won't mind. <laughs> um, Wendy, I've spoken to lots of literary folk recently, as I do, who've all said they think that short stories are in a really good place at the moment, not that they were ever in a bad place, but in, in terms of, you know, shorter attention spans, maybe attracting, I don't know, a younger audience. Would, would you would you echo that? Do you think that's there's any truth in that? No, okay. <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really. And here's the reason why, Joe, right? Number one thing is that I actually don't find, uh, I mean, number one, I would love it if that was the case. I'm a short story aficionado, so I would adore it if they were on the up and up. But what I do feel is that um, I, I find it more difficult to read a book of short stories than I do a novel. And if it's to do with the kind of idea of, well, you know, it's, you know, there's sort of shorter you know time span or whatever that people have well well novels quite often are conveniently chunked into chapters so you know that is portioning it up for people um yep. but also as well i find a short story collection quite difficult to read one after the other so it takes me much longer to read a whole collection than it than it would a novel to be honest and that's because i think the nature of short stories that you know, there's a sense that quite often you need to sort of ponder that ending and there's a, a sense of sort of, um, I don't want to say, sort of future time built into the ending that you as the reader are sort of supplying. So I would hope maybe with, say, for example, some of my short stories that it's up to the reader, they're sort of co-opted into creating meaning and it's up to the reader to kind of project what they think the ending might be. And so I rarely go through a, a collection of short stories just reading one after the other. To me, it's like having loads of shots, like drinks. <laughs> or it's, have, it's like having 
it's like having this loads of really rich truffles to eat or something. It's just too much for me. So that's why I, I find as a reading experience, I don't I, I don't really think for me that that rings true, that the, the, the thing that the short story collection is becoming more sort of palatable for people. I don't I don't really I don't really think that. That's so interesting. And I know exactly what you mean, because um, I judged for many years the Costa Short Story Award. Oh, really? And yeah. And so, to you know, and as part being a judge for that means you read a load of short stories, right? That are all submitted anonymously, uh, just with the t they just have a title and you don't have any other information and they're all formatted exactly the same way so that you're judging them purely on, on the story and there's no sort of um, outside influence. But I remember one particular year, I hadn't proper, you know, I hadn't spaced out my stories properly and I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, oh, got the, judging meeting in two weeks I better get on here like I'm a bit behind and so I try to read more in in succession and you're absolutely right when you say it's like taking shots or truffle uh truffles it's after you know I read one and then I'd be like right here are my thoughts okay on to the next you know straight on to the next and it's like no you need that time to percolate, actually. Yeah, exactly. All that you've just read, and because you've just been plunged into that world, whatever it is, and then to be taken out and go straight into another, which might be the case of the next story, actually, is a bit like disorientating. I think that's a perfect word, percolate. That's exact. That's exactly what I think you need to do with a lot of with a lot of short stories. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's so interesting that you say that. I'm, I'm totally with you on it. I love that you're like, no, I don't agree. You're wrong. Your literary folk are wrong. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently. Um, Wendy, what, what's been floating your boat recently in terms of what you've been reading and enjoying? Anything you want to give a shout out to? Okay, well... The other night there, I heard the writer, I had never really heard of this writer before, um, Ron Rash. Um, uh, I had never really heard of him before, but I heard him reading a short story and it was one of the most wonderful readings I've ever heard of my life. Oh, wow. Well, it was 
it blew me away. It was absolutely, um, utterly stunning. So his short story collection is called Burning Bright, and I'm and I'm reading that. I've really enjoyed um, Matt Rowland Hill, um, Original Sins which is about growing up in an evangelical Christian household and then um, later on becoming um, an addict and then what happens after after that. Really loved um, Sarah Baum's Seven Steeples about a couple that take themselves away from um, society, I suppose, and go and live on the side of a mountain and their lives just become sort of so intertwined with each other and the pacing of the novel's amazing. It just slows everything right down. And, you know, I'm a dreadful reader in some ways. You know, I, I skip things all the time. Descriptions of trees or bushes or any of that. Now, to be honest, nature's just not my thing. Whereas this book just got me to read that really really carefully so i thought that was brilliant um industry of magic and light by david keenan wonderful book as well um prequel to this is memorial device and to do with uh, um sort of artifacts that are left over from a kind of a hippie commune there these artifacts that are found in a caravan so the story's told half of the story's told via via that mm, great and um when you say you heard ron rash read one of his stories was that yeah. in per in person yeah it was at a festival it was at a ah, festival. cool just okay uh-huh yeah and it was superb really moving yeah. yeah it's just brilliant to be reminded of that every so often that you can yeah, hear somebody read their work and be well i think that's so it. so important with uh, with literature is hit you know is hearing the author deliver it a bit and so and sometimes it's magical when it when it's the right circumstances and when it you know when you're in the mood for it and when it's the right piece and all the you know it's it's wonderful um so we'll check we'll check ron rash out that's a great shout do you do you do many public readings i do i do i went from honestly joe being practically a hermit prior to having these books out really i've been a total attention seeker <laughs> and turning up for virtually anything i yeah i really like read i really like reading the work aloud i really enjoy that but and as you say, it's wonderful whenever you do come across, I'm not saying me, but it's wonderful when you come across a person who can read it. But it, I don't think you, it, it, it shouldn't be a sort of prerequisite, not that it could possibly be, but some people don't like reading their work and some people aren't, aren't very good at reading their work. And that's totally okay as well. That's the reader's yep. job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, yeah, like you say, when you... When you when you sort of get stopped stops in your tracks or whatever, or you go to to hear someone read it and they really deliver, yeah, what a wonderful thing! It is. What it's a brilliant, brilliant. thing! It's yeah. brilliant. Thank you for those. What about you, Anthony? Have you had to, time to read and enjoy some things recently? Yeah. So at 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 the present moment, I am uh, teaching a seminar on linked short story collections or or novels and stories. Well, whatever. I mean, look look at this. <laughs> look at this. It's like it's like it was planned, wasn't it, to have you two on? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, I yeah. I, so I I'm, uh, I I noticed that so many um, so many first books. In, in recent years have taken the form of linked um, linked short story collections. And, and I think that in, in America, at least, it's been a way of trying to bridge the divide between uh, MFA programs, which tend to privilege short stories and commercial publishing, which tends to privilege the novel. So I've, I've been teaching a class on um, 
just on on what you can sort of do in a, a link story in the link story format that um, that in some ways is uh, allows you much greater freedom and 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 can um, allow writers to create stories that are um, or create narratives that are, are more complex and, and ambitious um, than what they could um, otherwise achieve in a novel, I think. Um, so so two, two examples that um, that I, I read uh, recently um, and was very impressed by um, is Jennifer Egan's new book, The Candy House, um, and its predecessor, A Visit from the Goon Squad. I, um, a, a Visit from the Goon Squad, I, I first read that when I was in graduate school, um, right when it came out in 2010, I think, mm. and um, seeing the way that she has updated um, that book for our, our current moment, but also the ways in which she not only links stories within each book, but also links stories between um, her books. So there's there's one story in Goon Squad called Safari, in which she gives these sort of brief little uh, forecasts of various characters' futures, sometimes decades down the line. And those little little brief asides uh, become plot points in The Candy House, in, in her new book. And it's, it's just filled with all these sorts of, of beautiful little Easter eggs um, like that for uh, for her fans, um, so I, I I really love both of those books. Um, Louise Erdrich um, is uh, is a writer who um, also you know has has been incredibly influential in terms of um, the link story as as a format. We read uh, Love Medicine, her first book, which um, which everyone loved, um, uh, and most recently last week we read Disappearing Earth by. Julia Phillips, which is is set in the the Russian Far East, and oh, wow. um, sort of uses uh, uses the conventions of of a murder mystery as a way of of linking together um, stories told from the point of view of of women, um, uh, sort of across this 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 small town in um, in eastern Russia. Wow, what a fabulous list between you both. Have you, do you know of any of those, Wendy? I'm sure, I'm sure you probably do. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read the new Jennifer Egan book, but I love Goon Squad. I just think it's fantastic. Yes, I absolutely adore that. Um, thank you both for, for those recommendations. Um, and now it's time for another, because it's time for the book off, where each of you is going to get three minutes uninterrupted, if you want to use it, to tell us about a, another book that you love, that you think we should all read. Now, this book uh, can be anything. It can be non-fiction. It can be poetry. It can be short stories. It can be fiction. It can be old. It can be new. It doesn't matter. It just has to be a book that you love so much that you want to put it into everyone's hands, and you're going to tell us why in three minutes. Um, so we just need to do a little bit of admin before we get into it. Um, because we always say the person who's travelled the furthest gets to decide if they go first or second. Now that, in this case, Anthony, is you from uh, the, up there in Connecticut. So would you like to go first or second? Oh, um, I, I feel like like Wendy's just gonna gonna kill it. So I I, I don't want to go in after her. I'll go first. You're gonna. <laughs> you don't want to be. You don't want to be coming on like one of those bands that comes on. You know, after an amazing support act, and then everyone just. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, in which, okay, that's great. And then Wendy, uh, you your choice lies in the sounds <laughs> that will ring you out at your three minute mark. Now, as I said, you don't have to use all your three minutes but if you're still talking as the time crosses three minutes we can either honk you out with the bicycle hall or we, horn, or we can ring you out with the bell 
So which would you like at your three-minute mark? Bell. Okay, bell for you, Wendy. Fantastic. Thank you. Right, I'm putting three minutes on the clock, Anthony, and before we get started, just tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. I am putting forward We the Animals by Justin Torres. Fantastic. All right. Three minutes uninterrupted over to you then to tell us about We the Animals. All right. Well, as as I just mentioned, I'm teaching um, a seminar on Link's story collections. And over the last couple months, we've read uh, some of the most prominent examples of the form. A visit for, from the Goon Squad, of course, also Olive Kitteridge, um, Love Medicine, uh, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, uh, and so on. Um, but of all of the classics of the form that we looked at over the last couple months, the book that my students responded to with the greatest enthusiasm was hands down, We the Animals, uh, which is a very, very short first book by Justin Torres. It is about three mixed race brothers. Their mother is white, their father is Puerto Rican. And these three brothers grow up in poverty in upstate New York where they are largely left to fend for themselves. In this, this, this novel, Torres sees childhood as a state of feral wild, uh, wildness. Um, and that's uh, all the more so for these three brothers who form this kind of pack-like mentality in order to survive, hence the title, We the Animals. Um, in very, very short chapters, most are only um, a couple of pages, Torres describes the traumas of childhood as a process that gradually divides this pack of brothers into three individuals. And one of the most interesting aspects of the novel is how Torres uses narrative perspective to con convey this sense of, of slow uh, uh, erosion. The early chapters are mostly told through a first person plural, but as the book progresses, this is gradually replaced by the first person singular as the youngest brother and the main character quite literally begins to, to find his own voice. Throughout the language is lush and lyrical and um, it's filled with moments of extreme violence that are often situated uneasily besides moments of profound tenderness. And one of the reasons I'm championing uh, this book is because it's a brilliant example of narrative concision. It's 128 pages long with pretty substantial margins. And yet Torres is able to compress the entire arc of childhood into this book. I, I think that I'm often drawn to um, to writers who can do well what I struggle with. And, and this sort of radical compression is certainly an example of that. Um, but in an effort to... Uh, uh, to take after Torres uh, and and try my hand at some uh, some concision, I will I will end here before my allotted uh, time is is up. <laughs> Very good, right? I'll give you one of those anyway. Oh. <laughs> 13 seconds to spare, Anthony. Very good. Very well done. Thank you for that pitch. We'll come back and talk about it in a little bit more detail uh, in just a moment. But you can have a rest now um, and have a sip of that tea. Wendy, mm -hmm. putting three minutes on the clock for you. But before we start that, could you tell us the book that you're putting forward, please? Okay. My book, Joe, is called The Age of Innocence, and it's by Edith Wharton. Fantastic. All right, three minutes over to you to tell us about The Age of Innocence. Okay, so this is a book set in the 1870s New York. 
set among a sort of leisure class elite obsessed with taste and decorum and pedigree and form. And it's a world where everything operates on this sort of hieroglyphic level of sort of manners and suggestion. And um, behavior is really, really highly regulated. Um, it uh, opens at the opera where when you arrive, where you sit, um, how you arrive, how you leave, all of that's more important than what's on stage. So it's a super performative kind of environment. Um, our main character is Newland Archer. He fits this milieu really you know, seamlessly. He's engaged in May Welland, fresh, innocent, beautiful, all these things. Um, but Newland, while sort of stilting, still sort of holding to them, he does question the ideologies of his society, but he doesn't really pursue them. So he's got this sort of proto-feminist declaration, women ought to be free, as free as we are, but then he goes, I can't be bothered thinking about the sort of repercussions of that, and that's how it operates. Um, in comes Elena Lenska, his wife's cousin, separated from a Polish aristocrat, and total antithesis of his bride-to-be. So she's irreverent, she's questioning, she's interested in art and literature, totally unconventional. Of course he's going to fall in love with her. He falls in love with her just as he's about to get married. So now let the tension, torment, despair, elation begin. My friend says about this book that it reminds him of being in a um, really small room, um, stuck in a really small room with the heating on. Um, and I think it's like that too. Um, but his experiences involving being stuck in a really small room with the heating on go, it's one of the best, it really is. Lots of anthropological references because ultimately this is all about a society. Um, it's really sophisticated but really, really brutal and primitive. And one of the primitive aspects is just how violent it can be. So, you know, this society mobilises really, really delightfully in beautiful clothes with beautiful glassware and so on, but it mobilises to sort of expel without pity someone from the tribe, to eject from the tribe someone who's a threat to um, sort of stability and, and order. Um, I really, really love the book because of the characters, because character is my thing more than anything else. Um, it's easy to write about trailblazers, I think. People that absolutely um, are admirable in the way that they defy their society. But it's probably more interesting to write about the people that feel really compromised by it. And it's more agonising because they're kind of stuck. Um, and that's really Newland Archer. Um, he sees what he can be, but he knows that he's limited at the same time and he can't move beyond it. May is absolutely wonderful, beautiful, uncool, unsexy, just described as, you know, quite a snob. But at the very, very end of the novel, she comes through as a very complex, nuanced character and one of my favourites in literature. Boom. <laughs> Stick that in your pipe for seconds. Wow. Well done, Wendy. Thank you. That was that was great. Um, you can have a rest now and have a breather because that was pretty full on. Um, I loved both of these. Thank you. Um, Anthony, to come back to your pitch, um, I don't know this book. Obviously, this happens pretty much, I'd say, every time we do an episode of this podcast. I go, I don't know this book. I've never heard of it. And then I write it down and I order it online or go to my local bookshop and pick it up or go and borrow it from the library and read it. So I go, oh, yes, Anthony Mara was right. Um, or insert author here who told me about it. And this is one of those um, where, as you were saying it, I was like, why have I never heard of this book? Why haven't I read it? And all of these things. I loved that this is the book that your students responded to the most. I love that you've almost you've got a sort of like um, a litmus test there. Um, I assume you knew it anyway, and you already thought it was fab, right? Mm -hmm. 
So to get yeah, that yeah, sort I, of I, response th- is great. Th- this is a, 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 a book that um, I, I first read it when it came out in, I, I believe, 2011. Okay. And, and have, you know, ad- admired it um, over the years. And um, I was I was so certain, or no, I shouldn't say I was so certain, but but when um, when I put it on on my syllabus alongside, you know, some of these these books that are, you know, Goon Squad, Olive Kitteridge, et cetera, that are are perhaps a bit um, a bit better known. Um, I thought my my students, you know, might um, gravitate towards uh, those, those heavy hitters yeah. a, a bit more. Um, but universally, um, they they preferred this this book to anything else we'd read, and I, I think it's partially. Um, uh, a result of of the voice. It, it's such an interesting um, perspective. This sort of gradual shifting mm. from a first person plural to a first person singular, um, and and the ways in which the, um, the 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 feeling of kind of coming into yourself and and becoming your own person um, gets uh, gets sculpted just in in the narrative voice is is yeah. really brilliant and and i think it's also just the um the fact that he does so much in in so few pages I, oh i, I, I mean i couldn't believe it when he said that 128 pages and yeah like, and it's and i think you put it beautifully and he said he get, he writes a whole arc of childhood in that 128 pages and you think that i mean that is an incredible feat and to do it well anyway um i think it just sounds absolutely fab um i love the the idea of these brothers in a sort of like pack you know sort of wild pack and then as you said the first person plural changing throughout the book as the characters find their own voice just lovely like all of that just lovely um so i'm i'm so gonna buy this book and i'm gonna read it let me know what you think (laughs) and i'm gonna i'm gonna message you and and tell you exactly what i think uh and wendy uh, another great pitch here for edith wharton now um already when you when you open your pitch telling me it's 1870s new york uh with the elite like obsessed elite and then there's an opera and it's more about how you arrive where you sit when you leave than what's on stage i'm already like boom okay i love I love it already. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say that was that was a turn off the the no. class society, right? Okay, okay. No, because because for me, um, I want <laughs> I want that to be looked at and questioned, and I want to laugh at it a little bit, you know, and the ridiculousness ridiculousness of it. Um, and coming back to a little bit about what we we're saying uh, in terms of you can read a book from the 1870s in 2022 and you can see some things. I mean, insert, I don't know, um, a tennis match or something instead of the opera. And you'll see that it's the elite aren't watching the tennis. They're, they're out there, you know, having their buffets or they're they're swilling their champagne, you know, rather than being in the prime seats watching the action. And I think, Again, it that just comes back round a bit. <laughs> to- totally, and I mean, we were talking a little earlier there about historical fiction, and it and I think this counts as historical fiction because I think Wharton was looking back on the New York of her of her childhood, and I think it's totally true what you're saying in the sense that, um, because because the because the society in this novel is also likened to previous societies. Um, the implication is also, therefore, that it's also going to be like other societies. Other in the societies, future. yeah. So it's exactly, yeah. it's exactly what you're saying, Joe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, obviously, talking about characters and having singled out 
single out, having mentioned that, you know, in your work, the characters are, you know, so great. And, and that's also why you love this book, which I just think is brilliant because they're, you, they've obviously spoken to you. And that's a, that's a lovely thing, I think, as someone who loves their own characters and loves writing these fan, fabulous people. Yes, I mean, I'm I'm just always interested in characters of of some degree of of nuance, I suppose. And this um this this Newland Archer character is just yeah. constantly it's ricocheting between two different positions. And his you know his his wife, who you think to yourself, right, okay, I've got the measure of you. Well, maybe as a reader, you actually haven't. Yeah. Um, so I, I just enjoy that. I enjoy that type of complexity. But I loved hearing about Anthony's Anthony's choice as well. And I, I'll be I'll be getting that too. I think You've written that one really. down as well, have you? Yeah, totally yeah like me. Thought it sounded <laughs> fabulous. Yeah, totally. Doesn't it? I tell you what, I love I love the I love the, uh, the analogy your friend gave there of of like being trapped in a really small room with the heating on. Yeah, yeah. What a brilliant, what a brilliant way to describe this <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Anthony? Sorry. Oh no, just that um, I I read um, the Age of Innocence a, a couple of years ago after you know it was sort of. Um, uh, looking down at me guiltily from my book my bookshelf for for a couple of years yeah. and I was like oh gosh this is like one of those books that I have to read and and I was amazed I, I thought that it was going to be this like very stuffy um you, you know um just sort of everything gilded in in a a, a patina of of um you know privilege and and pompousness and it's what 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 amazed me is just how funny it is it is uh, you know um, Edith Wharton's wit is she wields it like um, like a scalpel. Um, in, in in some ways, the writer that 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 book um, made me think of the most was Zadie Smith, um, in terms of of like breaking down um, sort of so, sort of like peeling back the the layers of, um, of of a society and and the various you know um, class uh, divides. I I, I, I thought it, it, it's just a brilliant book. You, you make me want to. Um, Go back to it uh, immediately. So basically, you're both voting for each other's book in this. Yeah. Yes. Happened now. Yeah. Okay. Great. That really helps me out, guys. Thanks. Um, <laughs> um, look, I loved the sound of both of these books. I loved your pictures, your enthusiasm, your energy. Uh, definitely going to read them both. But I do have to take one home because that's the game, isn't it? Um, and I think by an absolute whisker, I think the one that's Oh, now I'm debating now. Now I'm, I'm on the fence. I'm sorry. I think the one that's just got me by a whisker is We the Animals. The Justin Torres maybe has just taken it. I think for the 128 pages. Um, <laughs> it, means I can, it means I can cram more books in that way. It means I can get that one done quicker. <laughs> and sometimes when it, it just comes down to something like that that can make the decision um, <laughs> but I, I absolutely love both of those pictures thank you so much for bringing them to our attention thank you for your other recommendations as well and here's two recommendations as well from me dance move by wendy erskine which is out now it's published by pan mac and mercury pictures presents by anthony mara also out now published by john murray and you should uh, get yourselves a copy uh, from your local bookshop your local library and they should sit proudly on your shelves once you have read them wendy anthony what an absolute pleasure we could have talked for another hour but uh, we will actually when we all meet up in los angeles exactly uh, our, we go. Uh, don't, don't forget time yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you john murray in advance and pam mac for paying for that <laughs> Um, it's been really lovely thank you both for your time thank you thank you this is a treat 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.